And also when we're bringing up the nexus of gender and climate change, you know, we'll use simple techniques because in our workshop, we'll have males and females, you know, we'll use simple techniques to say, okay, we'll ask one man in the audience, tell us what do you use water as a man? What do you use your water for in, in your daily life, you know? Okay, I get up, I bath, I drink water. Sometimes I water the garden if I have. And, you know, that was it. Then we'll ask a woman to stand up and tell us her uses of water. It was amazing. Even men were like, oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> they never thought it that far, you know? Then we take it to the next level to say, as you have seen that, a woman has more uses of water and that is not for her own benefit, but for the benefit of the family, of the community. So it is important that mm. women are in decision-making. Women are involved in all the processes, the planning process, when we have to talk about water, make decisions. We don't have to leave them out. You know, when we talk about costs for water, clean water, you know, they are working with water every day. They can come up with better ideas. So that is where we come from. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to BRIM. I'm very excited today to share with you my conversation with Indivile Mokowena, where we talk about a lot of different things, including her experience growing up in Soweto, South Africa, her work with Gender CC, and why we need women at the table for climate decision-making, and the role of NGOs in bridging the gap between governments and local communities. Hope you enjoy. Thanks for joining us. Awesome. Well, so excited today to be speaking with Indivile Mokoena, and she's based in Johannesburg, South Africa. Um, and the two of us had a chance to, to meet and collaborate coming out of the COP26 conference. Um, and here we are. <laughs> so, Indivile, it's so <laughs> great to have you with us. Thank you for, for taking the time today. Thank you for reaching out to me and also giving me this opportunity to share my story, my experience. And um, yeah. Yeah, we're, I'm so excited to, to learn more about what you're working on. And um, just as a quick introduction, um, Indivile works for an organization, an NGO called Gender CC. And like I said, they're based in Johannesburg, South Africa, but have done a lot of work in, um, in Southern Africa in general as well. So, um, you know, I... I've really enjoyed getting to research your programs and speak to you a little bit more about what you're working on. But before we get into all of that, um, would you tell us a little bit about you and where you come from and how you've got to where you are today? Um, and then we can get into all the programs and all of that great stuff. Yeah, okay. Um... Yeah, I'm born and bred in Soweto. It's a township in Johannesburg, based in South Africa. I grew up there and I studied there. And I'm from a family of six siblings and I'm the third one. And um, yeah, um, 
we were not rich nor poor, but my parents really worked hard to give us a comfortable um, life. Yeah, so with my studies, after completing metric, I'm not sure what you call it in your language, but it's the last grade before you go to university. Okay, that, that sort of yes. high, high school. In, high school, in yes, I, sh I should have just put it that way. Yeah, high <laughs> school. Um, yeah, I couldn't go um, to varsity straight away because at that time, my parents were no longer working. And I had to look for a job so that I can help them at home and also uh, help my siblings, you know, especially with their studies. Um, however, I tried to get some bursaries from where I was working. My first job was at the bank. And um, yeah, one could get a study loan sort of. And unfortunately for me, I had to study what, um, courses that were related to the work that I was doing. So uh, one, uh, because of a desperate situation, one could just grab any job that you get. You couldn't just choose and say, no, I want a job in this field, you know. Yeah. Although my passion and my heart was um, in uh, social science, but I had to study bank mm -hmm. studies, go to marketing and all of that. And um, yeah, eventually I got my diploma in marketing. And um, yeah, in between life, work and studies, I got married, I got two kids and, you know, a lot happening in between. But um, I, I, I got to a stage where I felt what I was doing, even though I was doing well, I, I was doing well, I was uh, quite successful because I am a hard worker by nature. Uh, I was not fulfilled. I was no longer enjoying what I'm doing mm -hmm. because I knew exactly where my passion was. And um, I think what um, inspired me to take action was that during my part time, I was volunteering in. Um, community development work, be it working with children, with women, doing counseling. You know, um, during that time, HIV and AIDS was very rough. So mm -hmm. I took some counseling courses and I was helping out at orphanage homes and all of that. And that burning desire, I, 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 you know, each time I was volunteering, I felt this is where I belong. You know, this is who I am, you know. Yeah. And um, at some stage, um, a lady from our church introduced me to a, a ministry called Justice and Peace, which was uh, working on social ills in communities. And the focus areas um, were environmental justice, gender justice, good governance, uh, land rights, and also uh, monitoring health systems. So before we could embark on any activity, we had to do um, um, a, a, a social analysis, yep. you know, to, to assess the needs of the communities because uh, we had to work, um, you know, churches have got parishes, branches. So we, work, we had to work around the community, around the church. 
And we needed to do a social analysis to find out what are the social needs in that area, because there is no point in going to implement something in the community that the community themselves, they don't relate to that. Yeah. The project is going to fail. It's not going to be successful. So we had some workshops talking to communities and we also um, took some rounds in the community, you know, just to assess to see what is happening in the community, who's doing what and, and what are the concerns of the community. And um, illegal dumping was one thing that communities complained about because it mm-hmm. was done within, around the homes, you know, around the schools and all of that, and also littering. So we took up environmental justice and also good governance because we felt we needed to work with a local councillor. The government has to come into the picture. They have to tell us this open space that people are dumping illegally, who does it belong to? What can be done? And also um, when it was um, time for elections, we felt the community didn't get any voter education. So working with the councillor helped um, to build that relationship between the the local council and the communities, and also to teach them what voter education is all about, about their rights and um, taking part in the activities of the local councillor so that they can have their voices heard. Yeah, so we also looked at gender. gender-based violence. So yes, those are the things that I enjoyed with my whole heart. I wish I could do that full time. And yeah, I got to a stage where I felt, you know what, as long as I'm doing this work that I don't enjoy, that frustrates me, I'm not going to get anywhere. So I just left. That's an amazing story. Yes, (laughs) yeah. But that's how it started. And that experience really um, landed me where I am today. And I'm grateful for that opportunity and experience that I got from um, my volunteering in that, um, those activities. And yeah, um, I won't forget where I come from and the, the ministry still exists and we still do a lot of work and I contribute, you know. Fantastic. What, yes, with yeah. what I'm doing now. Yes. Well, that's that's an that's amazing work, and um, you know the the connection from your volunteer work to Gender CC is very clear yeah, as well. Absolutely right, because <laughs> yes, um, at least from what I've learned from you and from from the research I've done, you know, Gender CC is focused at the intersection of you know environmental justice. And gender justice. Yes, amazing. Thinking about about the ways that those two things intersect. Um, And also, I remember in our last conversation, you speaking so poignantly about community involvement Mm. and um, participation and consultation. So I would love to get into all of that as well. Um, You know, and the local government aspect is also incredibly interesting too. Right? How, how do you how do you work with a national government, but then also boil that down to local governments where you know mm. community based action is happening? 
right? So, um, but tell us a little bit about Gender CC and maybe we can start there. And uh, I would love for everyone to hear hear a little bit about what you're working on um, with that NGO. Yes, um, Gender CC was established 11 years ago. I wasn't there, I only joined it when it was about five years old. And uh, I think it was, it started at the UNFCCC um, conferences. Okay. And yeah, because the lady, the founder of Gender CC Southern Africa attended the conference and I think she was funded by Gender CC International. And uh, yeah, she was working, she was an activist on gender issues, environmental issues and you know, she, she was inspired with the processes and felt she can do more, you know, um, to raise awareness on climate change and help communities and thinking back where she's coming for, from in her rural uh, parents' place, you know, the, the challenges that they are facing. Then she's founded Gender CC Southern Africa. And uh, yeah, it started from there. However, yes, our focus is on um, climate justice and gender justice, which um, entails advocacy work, advocating for the integration of gender into climate change policies, capacity building for communities, for government officials, and raising awareness on the nexus of gender and climate change within communities, um, training communities and implementing concrete projects that build resilience and help communities to adapt to climate change impacts. And um, yeah, basically that's um, the focus of our work. Fantastic, yeah. And I I have a couple questions um, because I, you know, coming out of COP26, you know, the term capacity building was thrown around all the time, right? <laughs> you know, we want to help communities build capacity. And I, mm. I, I'm not sure I ever really got a good understanding of what that meant. Um, w- would you give a little bit of background or um, the background on what you think that means, at least? Um, okay. And then maybe we can get into some of these, these, these projects as well. Because yes. I remember you, you mentioning some projects with local farmers um, you know, some, some distributed energy projects as well, but, um, um maybe let, let's start with capacity building, if you don't mind. Yeah. I would love your okay. thoughts on that. <laughs> All right. Um, with our experience working with communities, um, and also with government officials, we realize that, um, as much as communities, um, are able to identify the challenges that they are facing, which are related to climate change. Um, They didn't know what to do, where to go, and what is this that is happening around them? Where does it come from, you know? And how do they relate to it? How do they stop it, you know? So that to us um, said, Um, We need to build capacity, meaning we need to empower these people with knowledge, with information, with resources when necessary, and um, help them to to be able to 
um, identify and um, the, 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 the challenges, you know, and relate yeah. them to their uh, social settings and also to tap into their traditional knowledge because when it comes to climate change issues, environmental issues, you know, um, we know back, back then how our forefathers took care of the environment, you know, some of the knowledge they did um, give to the generations, especially when it comes to farming, preserving food, you know, and in our culture, how we value environment, how we relate to nature. So we needed to tap into that knowledge that they need to come up with that knowledge, even if they didn't have, but they need to go back to their communities, try and uh, map out who knows about this. What did you do during your time? How did you preserve water? How did you um, harvest rainwater? You know, because a lot of this um, technology civilization was not there during that time, but people sure. survived, yes, with clean, pure water and, you know, eating well, uh, planting their own food, you know, things like that. So um, for us, that was capacity building. And it was not like uh, just giving them information only, but also um, enabling, them, enabling them to be able to source out information. As I said, they can tap into the, 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 the traditional knowledge, the indigenous knowledge, and they will come up with solutions. We yeah. didn't have to come up with solutions for them that, okay, you have this problem in your area. How do you think it can be sorted? You know. So for right. us, that was capacity building. And also when we're bringing up the nexus of gender and climate change, you know, we'll use simple techniques because in our workshop, we'll have males and females, you know. We'll use simple techniques to say, okay, we'll ask one man in the audience, tell us, what do you use water as a man? What do you use your water for in, in your daily life, you know? Okay, I get up, I bath, I drink water. Sometimes I water the garden if I have. And, you know, that was it. Then we'll ask a woman to stand up and tell us her uses of water. It was amazing. Even men were like, oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> they never thought it that far, you know. Then we take it to the next level to say, as you have seen that, a woman has more uses of water and that is not for her own benefit, but for the benefit of the family, of the community. So it is important that mm -hmm. women are in decision-making. Women are involved in all the processes, the planning process, when we have to talk about water, make decisions. We don't have to leave them out. You know, when we talk about cost for water, clean water, you know, they are working with water every day. They can come up with better ideas. So that is where we come from. So it's simple. They understand it. And, you know, so, yes, okay. when it comes yeah. to government of officials, when we engaging with them about integrating gender into climate change policies, and um, they didn't know how 
and they didn't understand the linkage, you know, of gender and uh, climate issues. And we had to explain, you know, um, a lot of issues, simple issues like water, energy, and food that who deals with that, you know, at home, it is a woman. And also um, looking at social and economic issues that um, women these days, they work. It's very rare that you find women being housewives. They are housewives, but um, not a big percentage. And some of them not out of choice because there's no job. But working women still have care work. And we stress the importance of care work how it contributes to building a community system, how it co- contributes to the economy of the country. However, it's not being recognized, it's not acknowledged, and it's unpaid, you know? Mm-hmm. So those are the issues we were bringing up. And most women who are not in a formal um, employment sector are in an informal, and they also contribute to the economy. However, that sector is marginalized, it's, it's, it's not recognized, it's not acknowledged, and also they suffer from the impacts of climate change. So when policies are made, they need to be inclusive. They need to recognize all those sectors and everyone and not leave anyone behind. So we had to run those workshops to the um, government officials and give them case studies you know, of uh, what is happening at local level, you know, mm-hmm. when women had to um, go fetch water, go and get firewood with babies on their back, and how uh, during that process, most of them are victims of gender-based violence. So we need places that will protect women. When we talk about climate change, when we talk about disasters, disaster risk management. They need to take into cognizance that women have special needs in those circumstances. Yeah, so in a nutshell, that's our capacity building. Well said, it's a great answer. (laughs) And it's helpful for me to understand that too in real terms. So thank you for that. Um, (laughs) So you you were running workshops with the local governments. Did I hear that right? Yes. Amazing. Because I, I can imagine, I remember you, you told me about a specific solar project that maybe we can get into, um, sort of small scale solar energy. And your example that you told me really stuck with me because one, you know, the government had this great idea of doing, you know, putting solar panels on everyone's roofs, but uh-huh. a lot of people in the local community didn't understand what that was yeah or why it was important right mm. and so I, can you speak a little bit about that project yes and, um, um, maybe even what what we can learn from the planning process as you said yeah like how do you how do you actually incorporate and consult with the local community more effectively so that you know solar energy is a great thing but you know how do you do that in coordination with with local communities um, in the right ways? Okay, Um, that was a while ago. 
and um, the government was um, at its initial stage to introduce um, solar geysers to um, low cost housing because they were building this low cost housing for um, people who cannot afford bonds and uh, yeah, people who didn't have homes. They were trying to move people from informal settlement to you know, a, 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 a better housing, though they were low cost housing. Now um, there was this new project where they were talking about the solar geyser heaters that when they were building these houses, they were putting these solar geyser houses. Now there's this particular area where we happen to do an energy audit in co collaboration with um, energy, Sustainable Energy Africa organization. So um, this was a new area, a new development and um, they had this solar geyser um, uh, um, installed in their homes. And when we uh, got um, a history, when we listened to the communities, because initially when we went there, they didn't want to talk to us because we, we, we talked about um, energy, geyser, electricity, and apparently, um, they were not paying electricity. So they thought we are from the government, we are from the city, we are spying on who's not paying, who uh -huh. is paying, you know? Okay. So they were reluctant to talk to us. So until we had to speak to um, community leaders, because that's important that when you get to a community, you have to find out if there are established um, co co committees, you know? in the community, then you can speak to the leader. Once the leader understand and accept, um, you know, our, our initiative, then he can talk to the community and they will welcome us. So um, apparently these geysers were established, it was during election time. And they were just rushed through, they were just established, they were just installed without yeah. talking to communities, without explaining to communities. So it was one of, um, you know, um, election, you know, uh, strategies, you know, to, to buy votes that um, this is what we are doing. This is the improvement that we have made. So the communities, they didn't know um, exactly what are these for and, um, they know that they get hot water, but at times they don't get it and they didn't know how this works. And um, these were not even maintained because no one was coming to maintain them. So um, they got them implemented by the election day, but <laughs> beyond that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And after that, you know, there was no follow up to come and tell them this is how we wear it works. This is how you check it you know, and maybe, it, 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 I don't think they had even, uh, no, they didn't have any storage facilities, mm. you know, that you can store extra energy and all of that. So yes, that was the challenge that the community had. And um, some of them, you know, had, they did not even, um, 
they were not even aware that these solar geysers can help them to save water, you know? Because at times they will boil water to go and bath, whereas there's hot water coming out of the tap, you know? So um, that's how we found out about those solar geysers because we were doing an energy um, audit just to find out how much they're spending, what energy um, appliances they are using at home. And um, we've, we realized that others uh, were using, were still using, um, you know, a firewood, those who, who, did, who did not afford to buy electricity, they'll use firewood. Others are still using candles. Others are still using um, paraffin. You know, all those toxic and healthy and, you know, most of the people were uh, exposed to internal uh, pollution. So, yeah, we, we, we did that audit where we were checking how much they were spending, you know, how much um energy they were buying and also who makes the decision at home on which type of energy you buy mm -hmm. you know so you find that even though the women were using the energy but a man has to decide that you know we're buying candles we're buying paraffin we're buying wood you know depending on his budget and he was budgeting alone so yeah it was a gender uh, based audit on energy so, um, yeah, we gave the communities a training to use wonder bags, which would help, you know, to keep temperatures either cold or hot so that they can be able to save on electricity. Yeah, so that's the story behind the solar geysers where communities were not consulted, there was no communication or even follow up. Mm. I mean, um, they ended up being, you know, um, white elephants, whereas if communities knew what were they for, they would took, take care of them and they would embrace them, own them and try and get more information on how um, these solar geysers operate. Awesome. So there's a lot of really great stuff in there to unpack. Um, but I, you know, I think, <laughs> I think one of my biggest questions, and I think, you know, coming out of COP26, one of the biggest things that I learned were, you know, lessons from indigenous peoples and, um, the panels that I went to, you know, that, that highlighted and uplifted people from indigenous backgrounds. One of the biggest consistent takeaways was, mm we already have the solutions, right? I mean, we've had them for generations, for yeah. years. So mm. we, we don't need someone else telling us what the solution is. We already have it, right? Mm. So um, it seems like the, the process of working with a local community, you know, a lot of people can do that well, but others may not understand how to, communicate with the local community, how to cooperate. Um, so can you walk us through a little bit of a, the process that you think is best when let's say a government in South Africa wants to go work with the local community? Um, you know, what I heard you say is find out who the local leaders are, right? 
who are the community leaders? What committees, what, what committees are built? Um, yeah. Go find them, talk to them and have them actually help you understand the needs and the challenges, but then help communicate that to their yeah. people. Um, then from there, you know, what, what happens next? Is it, um, you know, from planning to implementation to maintenance, is there a process that gender CC uses? Um, you know, it might be different from place to place, but I, I'd be interested in your thoughts there. Cause I, I think there's, there's huge potential to take the solutions that are already there. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Um, it differs from community to community. And I think collaborating with partners as well helps a lot because you might find that we want to enter into an area where we don't have any footprints. We don't want, know anyone there. The first thing is to find out um, which civil society organizations are working there. Then we go through them. They explain to us the dynamics of the community. Then they introduce to us to the community and we have to um, explain, you know, what, what, what is it that we're bringing to the community. And from there, we find out from them if is this something that is going to help them and what are their needs around, you know, the, the, the theme that we, we're bringing to the community, what are their needs. Then we start working from there, addressing their needs, because it's important that you build trust mm -hmm. and you deliver on your promises. You do not come and just impose and say, I have solar geyser heaters and I'm going to install them to your community. It's important to have meetings with the community, find out this is a new development. What are your basic needs? What are your priorities? Because you find that that community had other priorities, not so like Giza hitters. You know, even though the government thought that this would help them save on energy and all of that, but those were not the priorities of the communities. And I think the mistake that they did was not to consult with them. And if they welcome the idea, explain to them, how are they going to benefit? How is it going to help them? Because working with communities, it's important to realize that they have to benefit number one, and they have, you, you have to make a difference in their lives. And thirdly, they have to be empowered to be self-sufficient, to own the project, whatever you're implementing, after you have left, they have to be able to run with it and also, you know, come up with innovations on how they can improve on that. Rather than when you come to a, a community, implement a project, you do everything that they don't understand, they don't need. At the end of the day, you the project is finished, you're leaving the community and they are in a worse situation than when you found them, you know? So, um, yeah. Yeah, that is important. That is key. And now when it comes to government um, 
projects or government working with communities. I think as civil society and NGOs, we play a very important role as conduits, you know, because we understand how government works. We also understand how community works. So our role is really to bring the two together, you know, in one room, because mm -hmm. at, at some stage there were tensions, you know, between government and communities because of protests, because of service delivered, you know. So um, we do that by, you know, for an example, let me give an example. If there's a, um, a policy that has, has come out, maybe an energy integrated resource plan for energy that has come out, yeah. And we advise the government, you need to do, you know, community consultations. And usually when they do um, stakeholder consultation, um, it's only, you know, there's a lot of researchers, universities, scientists, but you find that there's no community representation. Yes, there will be civil society and they target, you know, these big known civil society. And at community level, the information is not filtering. They, they are not consulted. They don't know what is going on. Decisions are taken on their behalf. So we try to um, talk to government to get these people to their venues and also, um, I mean, to this meeting and make, make sure that when they reach out to them, they use community radios, community newspapers, not the newspapers, Mail and Guardian, Sunday Times, that communities don't read because they can't afford them. How are they going to get information that there's a public hearing on this date? So that's the information we're giving to government. And also that when they talk to communities, they need to use a simple language because these policies have technical, high-falluting language that don't make sense to communities. Yeah. So on the community side, we also try to um, explain the, the policies, you know, try and um, explain them at the language that they can understand. And also give them information, give them um, the dates on when they can go to these hearings and also pre-workshop them you know, have a workshop before they, they go to this mm -hmm. hearing just to, to tell them of the process, how the process works. This is how you work, it works. This is, you will be called and this is what you have to talk. Talk from the heart, talk, tell your story. You know, you don't have to, and speak with the language that you understand. In South Africa, we have 11 official languages you know, mm -hmm. but when you go to these public hearings, they will insist that people speak in English, you know. At times, that's not your mother tongue. You cannot express yourself, yeah. you know, articulately because um, it's not your mother tongue. So we encourage them, speak your official languages. I mean, their home languages, the languages that they understand because they are official languages. So that has really helped communities and empowered them to be able to understand what is happening and what are the procedures and what is it that they are required to do. So, um, yeah. yes, that has helped a lot because a, a lot of the government consultation meetings 
they do go to communities. At times they'll have a special meeting for communities only because if they mix with business, with scientists, you know, they have to stick to that uh, technical language. Right. So, um, yes, so that's um, the process that we use. And uh, yeah, the strategy rather that we use when we deal with communities. Awesome. And I love the way you frame that as sort of the, the bridge between government and community, right? <laughs> yes. And that's, that's such an incredible role for that to play. Because I, I know we also spoke last time about, you know, raising capital to, to resource these projects, right? Yes, and, yes. Um, you know, that, that's part of capacity building in, in a sense, right? Because absolutely, you know, you want to be educating, but then you also need to, you need to find someone to, to fund some of this. Yes. Um, but a lot of the capital, I remember you telling me this, you know, it can come with conditions. Right? Absolutely. So yes. how does that all play together? And, um, you know, that, maybe that can be one of one of the last questions we touch on here because I you've been so generous with your time but um have you had some good experiences with raising capital compared to some not so great experiences you know I, I think whether it's from a big bank or you know a lot of these sort of impact investors um it's a tricky <laughs> yeah. right it's a tricky game because it is you know, it is yeah mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I must say for us as Gender CC, um, we've been fortunate that um, the funding we've been getting is from sources that um, are focused on the work that we are doing. But we had instances where uh, partners, local partners um, got, um, you know, um, they will get like, um, I, I just, I'm looking for the right words. You know, like maybe a, a sponsorship or mm -hmm. a donation of some sort, yes. Mm -hmm. Let me give you an example. There's a, a partner on an organization that's doing a lot of um, community mobilizing and they do um, a lot of demonstration, protest. You know, when there are news that... Um, the, the World Bank is funding fossil fuel, Standard Bank, and so forth. Right. Then, they, yeah, they, they, their strategy and their focus is just to mobilize and raise awareness, go in a, a protest, or if there's a deal, this has to be signed between some business that's dealing with coal or, you know, fossil fuels with a certain bank, then they will go, or there's a board meeting during that day, they will go and protest and demonstrate, you know, Amazing. to say, yeah, how fossil fuels are harming the environment and, and so forth. Then you find instances where some of those um, companies, they would like to sponsor, you know, the organization mm -hmm. or would like to donate, you know. Mm -hmm. You know, then... Um, you know, we will discuss this as partners because in some instances you find that the organization needs money, you know, and, um, but, you know, um, we, 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 
we stress the point that we need to be focused. We need to stay on our goal. And um, that's dirty money because it means then we, it's, it's a conflict of interest, you know, and we're going against um, our, our, our vision, our goal, and what we tell communities, you know. So um, we agreed that as civil society, under no circumstances, we have to take such money because it's dirty money. And if we take that money, it means we cannot talk against what they are doing. We cannot oppose right. what they are doing, yes. So we also tread carefully when we collaborate with government, you know, that there are no conditions that we are going to turn against what we stand for. We have to stick to what we stand for, even though we do collaborate, but we are not going to bend our ways and support government in initiatives that we know that are not correct, are not um, are against human rights, are against women's rights, are a, a degrading um, the environment. So yeah, that is our, our stance as um, a civil society. So okay. we do support each other, you know, under those circumstances. Amazing. And I'm sure that's a unique experience um, operating in, in South Africa as well. Um, I'm sure there, I mean, apartheid was not that long ago. I, I, you know, I think that that's something that we forget a lot. You know, it's 1980s. <laughs> uh, and you know what? It's still in our minds. Of course. It's still, it's still in our minds. You know, the, the damage is still entrenched in our minds and even, you know, those who perpetuated it, it's still in their minds. You know, it's, it's not gone. No. <laughs> yeah. No. It might not be that visible, but it's still there. Yeah. It's still there. Yeah. Well, um, on that note, Indivile, thank you so much for your time today. Um, the work you're doing is incredible. And I think I speak for, I know I speak for myself, but also many others in, <laughs> in my world that um, we, we would love to know how we can help support you. Um, so how can people get in touch with you? Um, is it easiest to do that via the Gender CC website or you know, how, how can people find out more about you and, and your work? Yes, I think our website is the best platform, which is www wgendercc.org.org.za. So there's our emails, there's um, a telephone, there's all the work that we are doing and yeah, and also page on how they can, you know, contribute to the work that we are doing in any form. Perfect. Well, I will make sure that everyone on my end gets that website. Um, and I would love to, let's definitely plan to stay in touch regularly because I, I would love to hear how your work is developing and, and how we can be supportive. Um, I've learned a lot from you in the last week or two that we've known each other. So I, I look forward to continuing this, this relationship and this friendship. And thank you for your time again.
Um, anything else that you want to leave us with? Um, you know, advice for organizations moving forward. Um, you know, things that you see coming down in the future. Um, any any last words to to leave us with here today? Um. Yeah. Um. I think this work, this field we are in, you know, environmental um, justice and um, social issues, it's, it's quite involved and there's a lot that has been done and there's still a long way to go. But I think we have paved the way, the foundation has been built and we just need to bring on board generations to come, you know, to lend the ropes and we'll be mentoring and we'll be pushing hard because we still have a long way and we need to fight this battle to keep the planet safe for generations to come because we don't want to answer in our graves, you know, why did you do this? Why did you keep quiet? Why did you fold your hands? You know, so um, yeah, coming together, working together as one, I think we can achieve more as the world. Well and said. Thank well you. Said. Thank you for the opportunity and the exposure, you know. Thank you so much, and, Thomas. You know, it, it was fantastic to, to speak with you again today and um, you know, one of the big themes of, of BRIM and this project is, you know, there's a lot of negative energy and for good reason, it can be very overwhelming and yeah. depressing in a sense to, to look at the data and um, from a social justice standpoint and an environmental standpoint. But, yes. um, you know, I think highlighting signs of hope is really important during this time. And, you along with Gender CC um, are clearly a, a huge sign of hope for us. So um, thank you for the work that you do. And um, I look forward to, to partnering together moving forward. Thank you so much. Same here, I'm looking forward to our future collaboration. Thank you, Thomas. All right, take care, Nbile. Okay, bye.